0: Alright everybody, good morning. Why don't we get started? If, um, we're going to be starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, so you can open your Bibles to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you guys want to take one of those sheets, have a little outline for what we're going to be going through. So the topic is going to be teaching on marriage, divorce, and singleness. The scripture is going to be 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. And the general objective is going to be wherever we find ourselves in life, we can have the confidence in knowing what God's will is for us. And you'll see why I kind of said that. Specific objective that we would learn what is good and necessary for a holy and happy marriage and for living the single life. This applies to everybody. And the thesis, the Christian ought to understand the context in all situations. And have was hard for me to come up with a thesis statement. And I'm sure I, there's a better one that I can do for this. But hopefully you will understand what I'm talking about. In general outline there, one, our physical duty to our spouses. Number two, a word to single people. And number three, more instructions on marriage. Today, we are only going to get into number one, which is verses one to five. And I am going to read verses one to 16, just to get us started. So, with that being said, I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and we will get started. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your abundant grace, your, your mercies, Lord God, which are new every morning, which we experience on a daily basis as often as you get us up in the morning. So we thank you so much for that. And Lord, it is now that we commit this time to you, that we would give you our undivided attention, Lord God, that we would worship you, because that is the purpose of our existence. And Father, I pray that especially even with this topic I and mean, it's the same every week but that you would just give me the strength lord and the, the wisdom to speak lord god uh, I really don't want to speak at all i want you to speak through me and i trust lord god through the power of your spirit that you will do that and and that you alone would be magnified and that you alone would be glorified so at this time we commit to you lord and we thank you in advance for what you will do And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. So... Number one in the outline, titled "Our Physical Duty to Our Spouses." So in verse one, we learn of a letter written by the Corinthians that was given to Paul concerning some questions that they had. And as I was just thinking about that, I would say, especially knowing this church and their immaturity, right, that this was a good thing on their part. They were. We know that they were divided. We already know that they were somewhat of a train wreck, I guess you're going to see. Especially as we start continuing to read, they have a lot of issues. But they definitely exercised some wisdom in at least seeking out the apostles' help. So that's a good thing in writing him a letter, wanting to understand what he had to say. So this letter, we don't know what was written in this letter, but... We kind of have a little bit based on what Paul is saying. And it's going to actually set the context of everything Paul addresses in this chapter. We just learned in chapter 6 that many were guilty of sexual immorality in the church. And this came, I believe, from a wrong understanding of the scriptures probably influenced by Gnosticism. I touched on that a little bit last week. But on the flip side... Others were taking it to the extreme by saying that sex should be forbidden even in marriage. That maybe in their understanding that abstinence was holier than engaging in sexual activity. So, how do we understand this? I mean, we know that there's a real context where abstinence is in fact holier and any sexual activity is sinful if it is outside of marriage. That's fornication. That's the word, pornea, that keeps coming up in these verses, right? But the question we have to ask ourselves, and maybe one question that would come up is, does God desire marriage or celibacy for his people? And the answer to that question is yes, okay? The answer is yes. God desires marriage, but God also desires celibacy, depending on the context. The Corinthians, we know, were corrupt in and confused by many things. And their thinking was also confused. And when I started thinking of the word confusion, confusion comes from usually a lack of proper teaching. So it can start by what the pastors of the church are teaching. Right? Are the pastors or the teachers guilty of not teaching the word of God properly? Because if they're doing that, it certainly is going to bring confusion to the people who they're preaching to. But not just on the preachers, it's not just therefore for confusion comes when there's just a lack of studying and giving the attention to God's word that every saint is to give, right? The Bereans were praised by Paul because they searched the scriptures to see what, if what Paul was saying was true. And that's on each and every one of us. You can be sure to believe that the devil will seize his opportunity to cause chaos within the body of Christ when this happens. Right? Roger Ellsworth calls this contamination and confusion. And he says this combo is like a one-two punch combo that is destructive. In his commentary, he says the following helpful words, which I like. He He says, It is important to realize Satan, like any good fighter, uses these two punches together. One always sets up the other. He uses contamination to confuse us, and he uses confusion to contaminate us. So, even though this letter falls into two discernible parts, both contamination and confusion are apparent on every page. It is no surprise, then, to find Paul alluding to their confusion while he was still dealing with their contamination. In chapter 6 alone, we find him asking six times, do you not know? We know that we address that. And even though Satan uses both punches effectively, he says, confusion is the deadlier of the two. In other words, he says, the more confused we are about the Christian faith, the more apt we are to be contaminated with the world. And I can't agree more with our brother on this. Confusion will most certainly lead to sinful behavior and will often lead to bad theology. Okay, now with theology we said can if it's not in its proper place, can also we can get distracted by it, but theology is in fact very important. Confusion will lead to us being carried away by every wind of doctrine and be susceptible to believing anything that sounds good, especially if it's by a very good or charismatic speaker. So we need to be very careful. We know that confusion is certainly not the will of God for His people who have His Spirit, right? And uh, because of Israel's sinfulness, you look at the Old Testament. Oftentimes, we saw just the cycle, the crazy cycle that Israel was always on as a nation. And in the Book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, says this in chapter four, verse six. Or really, God is speaking through the through the prophet. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This is tough words. And it's not like they didn't have knowledge in their midst, right? I think of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Reminds us that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their, unrighteous, uh, their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So man knows the truth, they have the truth, but what? They suppress the truth. So this is no good. We know that 1 Corinthians 14 verses 33, when this is later, we're going to get there probably a few months from now. But Paul is teaching on them and their improper use of the gift of tongues and the chaos that that brings. And he says, For God is not the author of confusion in verse 33, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. So God does not want His people to be confused at all. Right? But we have to be humble. We have to be humble. And the reality is, is that confusion does happen. Right? Confusion does happen. It can be self-inflicting. And what I mean by self-inflicting, in other words, I know something and I suppress the truth. I purposely choose to ignore it. Right? Or, it can be there for the purpose of, for, for a good purpose. For driving ourselves to the most holy word so that we can get our counsel from the great and mighty counselor, God. So let's just say, I can tell you right now, I'm oftentimes confused by things. Right? And how do I get this? How do I unconfuse myself? i got to go to the source. Right? So it can be there for a good reason as well. So verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, this letter that we don't have, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. When Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he is speaking in particular of abstinence, while being single. Now some of you. I don't know. Some of you may be reading the NIV. I don't know. And I'm not, This is not the best to NIV. I believe the NIV is a good translation by the way. But uh, it's definitely not good in this version. They wrongly say that it is good for a man not to marry. And that's not the right use of the word. Uh, Hapto simply means touch. So it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Is the right translation. As a matter of fact. Many. Because of this text and maybe a few others, many have accused Paul of being anti-marriage because of what is written in this text. And that can't be any further from the truth. If we just look at the Apostle Paul, first of all, he was a devout Jew, right? He was a Pharisee. He was very much acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures. We can say that he had a love for the Old Testament scripture. He knew very well what God has said concerning marriage and historically in the context of his day many would say, many commentators, I think they all say that him as a Pharisee had to be married so that at some point in Paul's life he was married and then whether she was widowed or maybe she abandoned him after his uh, conversion to Christianity we don't know, we know at this point he was single but being a Pharisee he probably was married at one point so even though Paul wasn't married at this time most likely he was in the past so in other areas of scripture, Paul speaks quite a bit on marriage. Okay? But before we get into that, Genesis 2.18 reminds us, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So right from the beginning, in God's word, we see that it's good for man not to be alone. For human beings to fill the earth, there needs to be marriage. Now we understand we can do it apart from marriage. But ideally, according to God's standards, this is how it works. David Guzik says, Why would the Corinthian Christians suggest complete celibacy? Which is what they mean by a man not to touch a woman. They probably figured that if sexual immorality was such a danger, then one could be more more pure by abstaining from sex altogether, even in marriage. And the will of God is clearly... Marriage, I think, for most people, especially for believers, okay? It's not for everyone. We know that. There's exceptions here. But the will of God is that for most people. But because, verse 2 says, but because of immoralities, sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. So here, you know, it's interesting. You know, why get married? Okay? We can think of many reasons why we get married. But here, we have one of the God-ordained reasons for men and women to get married, so that we would not fall into the sin of fornication. It shouldn't be the only reason why you get married, okay? But it is a legitimate reason, it's something that is there why we would get married. From Genesis to Revelation, okay, and... Praise God. We're in the Old Testament in Sunday evening service, so we're, we're all over the Bible in this church. And if you're reading our Bibles, from Genesis to Revelation, fornication has been one of the plagues of mankind. Right? It's been mankind's downfall. It's been great men, and women of God, it's been their downfall. Right? Perhaps there's no sin that is more destructive and mastering to the soul than this particular sin. Just some stats as I was studying here, and I think it will be helpful for this. The pornography industry, remember the word here is porneia, that's what it <laughs> means. Pornography is fornication, sexual morality, so that you can see. It's on display. Pornography industry has a worth of about 97 billion dollars. Kristen Jensen wrote an article back in 2012. I don't know what this woman is. She she has a ministry, I think, that tries to protect the sexualization of kids. don't think it's a Christian thing, but what she wrote here is very good. This is in 2012. She says the following. When I think of big industries making big bucks, I think of finance, energy, technology, pro sports, mainstream entertainment, and automobiles. But until recently I vastly underestimated the economic powerhouse of pornography. Over ten years ago, and that means that that, that was talking about two thousand two, because of when this was written, Forbes magazine estimated profits from pornography at fifty six billion worldwide, and a different two thousand eight estimate came in at one hundred billion worldwide, with thirteen billion from the US alone. I don't know about you, she says, but I need some perspective to grasp what these numbers mean. So here are some comps, she says. Apple, which is booming recently with skyrocketing sales of iPads and iPhones and iPods, posted a profit of $11.6 billion for the quarter ending in April 2012. And in 2011, General Motors earned $6.1 billion selling cars, while Ford came around $7 billion. And back in 2009, the worldwide sports events market, all ticketing, media, and marketing revenues, for major sports was $64 billion. This is a total revenue, not a net profit, which would be less. Then another article I read by Lyndon Azkuna on October 28, 2021, it was titled, The Porn Pandemic. And it states the following on how we spend our money and how we spend our time. And he says this on how we spend our money. He says the porn industry generates more income than the combined revenues of ABC, NBC, and CBS and more than the combined revenues of NFL, NBA, and the Major League Baseball. In the USA, the porn industry generates between 15 billion and 97 billion a year. Every second, that's $3,000, $3,075.64 is being spent. On pornography. Interesting numbers. Then concerning how we spend our time, he says more people view internet pornography every month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. In 2016, people watched 4.6 billion hours of pornography at just one of the more than 42 million pornographic websites. That's equivalent to 524,000 years spent watching porn in one year. Now again, that's not something that should come to a shock to us. We know what's around us, but sometimes we need to hear the reality. This is something that's very true, that's very real in the world, inside and inside the church. Okay? So I'm saying these stats because the verse reminds us of the reality that we as humans have these desires. They're in us. And the thing of it is, is that God knows all this, right? It's, sexual desire is part of the makeup of who we are as human beings. God also knows that they are to be fulfilled. And because of this, we are to fulfill those desires one way, and that is within the confines of marriage. So Paul gives us some light on our husband's, and wives should understand their duty to each other. Again, squashing the idea that refraining, even in marriage, is better or even more holy than not refraining. In other words, they were taking an unhealthy extreme by going the other way. And we can, we're going to see that this can't be any further from the truth. So he says this in verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And the word for duty here carries the idea of an obligation or a debt. So spouses have an obligation to each other, right? We have an obligation to each other, just like the one who has a mortgage has an obligation to make his monthly payments until the debt is paid, right? I can't just go and say, I'm not going to pay my mortgage. I have an obligation to do that. But though it is the same concept as that, it's still much different. I don't look forward to the beginning of the month to write a check for several thousand every month. Right? But when it comes to sex, let's be honest, it ought not to be burdensome within the context of marriage. Now, I'm very well aware that there are exceptions to the rule. And there is, in fact, exceptions to the rule with this. Remember that fornication is a kind of sin. We know that sin is displeasing to God, but pleasing to ourselves. We know that sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin is the way that seems right to man. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, in that faith chapter, says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So fornication is sin because it is outside the bounds of God's law, but sect within the confines of marriage is not sin. Why? Because it is within the bounds of God's law. And when, I, and when I say this, I'm talking again about sex with your spouse alone. Not being married and having sex with someone else. Of course, that should be like common sense, but I have to still say that. So verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, we already went over the fact that the body, last week, is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Ultimately, we can say that God is the ruler of our bodies. He purchased us with His Son's own blood, We know we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. But when it comes to marriage, right? There is another reality and another sense. MacArthur says, The present tense of exousia they have authority over indicates a general statement that is always true. Spouses' mutual authority over each other's bodies is continuous it lasts throughout marriage in the normal realms of life a christian's body is his own to take care of and to use as a gift from god and in the deepest spiritual sense of course it belongs entirely to god what we just talked about romans 12:1 but in the marital, marital realm he says it also belongs to the marriage partner so understand this everything is god's Everything is God's. Everything that we should do, everything we do should be for God's glory. A man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, even when his wife is unlovable and doesn't reciprocate. The wife, we know, is to submit to her husband, but only because her God has said to do so. And by her doing that, she is doing it unto the Lord. So essentially, he qualifies everything that we're supposed to do. So just like stealing is a sin, because it is taking something from another, what is rightfully theirs and not yours, so it is with the bodies of spouses. So because some were doing this and thinking that they were being holier, and that's what was going on, Paul says the following strong words in verse 5. He says, stop depriving one another. So not only is this this a command, but the word used for deprive is the Greek word apostereo, and it is actually properly translated as as defrauding. The King James Version, I think is the, the original King James, actually has it right by saying it's defrauding. It's the same word used in chapter 6 where he says, Why not rather be defrauded? But deprive is also a good translation. Like most of our translations probably say that because to defraud means to deprive of something by deception. But I think the word defraud is a stronger word and it should wake us up when we see it. So to deprive one another is to, in fact, cheat one another, right? To cheat one another. It is an imperative verb coming from the mouth of God through the apostle. So anytime that happens, we would do very well to pay attention to what God is saying and take it very serious. But he adds an exception here, right? Because everyone can read this, especially his church, and just completely take everything out of context. There's an exception here. By agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So though sex within marriage is holy and important, it can also be a distraction and can also be a sin. It can become idolatry, which is linked to the first table of the law, right? You shall have no other gods before me, the scripture says. Nothing should ever take the place of of God. We shall love them with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength. So this exception given by Paul was him using great wisdom, especially because of how immature this church was. They might be reading this, I can just think of how the Corinthians were they might be reading this letter and then react in a way, probably not even finished, just stop there, where they become obsessed now with sex and leave no time for prayer. You know, it's unfortunate. This topic, for maybe some of the older ones that are in here, maybe you realize that, back in, say, the older times, the church would just breeze over this and probably not address it at all. And sadly, in modern times, I think of Mark Driscoll in particular, right, we take the other extreme by being overly graphic and start talking about sex like it's so wonderful, and we don't keep anything private, anything hindered, and we start making, saying, this is what you ought to do, and this is how many times you ought to do it, and this is what you should be doing, and that's not what Scripture tells us to do either. Right? So we need to be balanced, and Paul wants this church to be balanced. Because that can happen as well. We can get now overly obsessed with it. So if we take the whole of the Scriptures... We can conclude that when Paul says "Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, that he's also talking about reading, studying, and teaching the word as well. I think it all goes together. So though contextually here I believe he is talking about prayer together, I believe it also includes the individual time that we set apart for God as well. Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27 This is a word to the husbands It says they are to love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. You know, it is the the husband's job to pastor his wife, to pastor his family. And again, that is ideally, is there exceptions to the rule? Of course there is. It could be a spouse that's not saved. Maybe the, the, the wife is way further ahead than the husband. Ideally though, this is what God has said, that the husband is to do what the husband is to do. But then notice again what he says in verse 5. So he makes an exception. Accept that you devote this time to God. That there should always be that time together as husband and wife that you devote to God. But then when that happens, he says again, but afterwards come together so that Satan will not tempt you Because of your lack of self-control. And when I read that, this made me think of the notion... That there are sins that we would call, can call, greater sins. If you remember, Jesus said to Pilate... That those who delivered him to be crucified... Had the greater sin. Jesus said it would be better for a millstone... To be wrapped around the neck and be thrown into the sea of a person than to call one of his own to stumble. Right? So when God says to come together again in sexual union, it is for their own good. It is for their own purity. It is for their own protection. And sadly, and this is a reality that we have to deal with, neglect in the marriage, in this area, is one of the biggest reasons that leads to divorce. Divorce. And as much as that happens, guess what? It's still not a legitimate reason to get divorced. But there is a reality that, nonetheless, it is one of the reasons. And I think that the one who deprives or defrauds their spouse in this area does have the greater sin. Because you're doing something that's leading to something else, and God is very clear not to do that. At least it certainly seems like that to me. And if it leads to infidelity... It's certainly not an excuse for the person that did that. But it certainly can be a cause. And God is saying, listen, this is how it's supposed to be. And what does he mean when he says, so that Satan will not tempt you? I believe he's talking about not tempt you to what? To go look for it elsewhere and commit adultery and do a great sin. So it only seems fitting to think that it will lead to fornication whether the actual physical act or through pornography, which is an epidemic or pandemic, whatever you want to call the word, in our society. Either way, we need to look at it as cheating. Cheating. And is not good. Maybe this will be helpful for any single ones, both young and old. But when you engage in that activity, physically or through pornography, you're doing it in front of the God who sees and knows everything and is everywhere, number one. And you are cheating, committing adultery against your future spouse, if God, that is God's will for your life. Just a practical way to understand it. So, for application, I thought it would be very fitting. You know, there's a reason why we uphold confessions. Catechisms that are based on the old confessions of the Reformation—not that they're perfect and flawless—but a lot of time and care was put into them by great, great men of God that really knew the Bible in and out, knew the languages in and out, did careful study. Okay, and this made me think of question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, "What is the chief end of man?" And you guys should know that. Does anyone know? What's the Answer the question. Oh God. To, glor, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I think that this is beautifully and simply written for our understanding and sanctification. It's pretty much perfect. But it is a blanket statement, isn't it? It's a generally a blanket statement to glorify God. And it works. It's fitting for, I believe, this lesson. It is true on all levels, and it is fitting for now, but at times, at times, we ought to have a specific illustration for the context we are in to see what glorifying God actually looks like, right? What does that act, look, I can say, why do I do this? Well, to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Yes, that's right, okay, but what does that look like in any particular situation, Right? But for hours this morning, I believe this is fitting. But just a couple of verses, and then I'll close. I believe that goes with this. And I know I've been rambling, so I'm going fast. So please stop me if anyone has a question. Uh, First Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I think it's fitting, whether you're single. You know, I didn't mention this. I think I have time because it's going to continue to talk about this later. But um, singleness is a gift. Now, some people might want to say, is, "Is this an actual spiritual gift?" You know, can make the case for that. But I think I, from studying, if you're single, that is a gift from God. You are in, that's where God has you, right at this moment, even if it's temporary, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're single, right, God wants you to honor Him with your bodies, with your mind. Same thing if we're married. It doesn't change. That you have a great opportunity to do things that you couldn't do when you're married. Well, again, whether you're married or single, because Mm -hmm. that, that that, that thought just got in my mind. I probably should have waited, but whatever. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, this was one of our verses for my, the basketball team this year for the homeschool. Is that whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, that's everything, right? Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. So part of what we do or what we say has to do with what we say. Okay? So how we speak is extremely important. It can't just be words. There certainly needs to be action that follows it. But how we speak is important. And when we speak, it should be things that come from the truth of God's word. Those things that are going to build up the body of Christ. And those things that, could, that God can use when we're dealing with people in the world. Speak things that are truthful. The utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In other words, don't try to do more than what God has not supplied you to do. Right? Just do what God has told you to do. Do it in His strength. Do it with all your might. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it all comes back to the reality that we are not our own. Right? We are not our own. We belong both body and soul to Him who loved us and gave himself for us. Therefore, we should strive to love him back. So if we take it in our context here, in our marriage, when we love God back, we love him by loving people. That's why he joins the two greatest commandments together. He joins the whole first and second table of the law together as one law, one rule of life for God's people. Right? And there's so many different contexts that we have in our lives where we can apply this. So let's strive to love him back and be who God has created us to be. Is there any questions or comments? I think it's
1: interesting at the end of verse five, where it says, Satan will not be because of lack of self-control." I feel like he's speaking in an absolute, right? That, 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 you don't have self control it's kind of applied to everyone right Come together so Satan to you because of your lack of self control your assumption that everyone lacks this self control so they should come together again with their you know with their wife their spouse etc. uh because it, assumed, it, it it's assuming that it's tough to control these urges right so yeah. so within the bounds that God provided in marriage that you know these urges are, are you know It's supposed to satisfy those. those Yeah, absolutely. And so, just taking that and what you said about the giftedness of singleness, I would probably qualify this part. I would probably qualify that the self-control in singleness is probably the gifting from God. Because if you're you're single and you're burning with a lust and a desire, it chances are that's not your giftedness to be single, right? Because if you're burning. Sure.
0: Sure. But but yet there's and yet if everyone is single and has those desires, yet we have to control them
1: oh yeah
0: <laughs> we have the control in his no I had mentioned before that in, in verse 3 right verse 3 and 4 about our duty in that area as spouses there's exceptions I mean there, there could be exceptions within I mean, there's so many different contexts I think that you know whether it be uh, physical something physical it could be something where again let's just be honest We can dishonor God by, and dishonor our spouses by not taking care of ourselves. It could be a number of different things where maybe it's just not quite what it should be, right? Whatever it is, God expects us to take the high road and be the better person at any given, at any given moment, you know? But the reality is, yeah, it comes down to Generally speaking, we don't have that control because this is how God has made us. So, within marriage, it should be a beautiful, wonderful thing. It oftentimes is not because we've allowed sin. Sin ruins everything, right? Sin ruins everything. And we have to be very aware of that. We can be aware of my frame of knowing that, and we should be aware of each other's frames. You know, that's why spouses should know that. You know, if I'm not doing this, they might go looking someplace else. And yet they're wrong for doing that. But I'm wrong for doing this to make them do that. You know, so we need to, there's a lot to be, there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of thought that has to go in this. And I think it's important. And I think that we should know better as Christians and that we should seek to honor God in everything that we do. Anything else? Good? All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for, Lord, if we're married, those of us that are married, I thank you that you've given us our spouses. And Lord God, if those of us here are single, I thank you that. they have that opportunity Mm -hmm. to serve you in a way that they will not be able to serve you when they're married. So, Lord, I just thank you for all things. And I pray, Father, again that, again, I think it would be fitting, Lord God, for those who are single and and have a desire and attention to get married one day, Lord God. I pray that you would keep them pure. That you would keep them pure in you. That you would bring strong conviction into their lives, Lord God, that that would keep them from opening up doors that they shouldn't open up and keep them steadfast and focused on you and that you would be with their future wives, that you would protect them in the same exact way, Lord God, and that they would use that opportunity, Lord God, even now to fill their time with you and serving you in whatever capacity, Lord. So wherever we find ourselves, Lord God, help us to just be who you've called us to be, and nothing less, Lord God. We know at times, on a daily basis, we we do the less than what we are created to do. And we ask for forgiveness for that. But Lord, every moment, every second, every breath that we take, every day, every new day that you get up, is truly your mercy, Lord God. And an opportunity to serve you better, and to learn from our mistakes, and put foot and action to what we know you have said in your word. So Lord, I pray that if we are lacking knowledge here this morning, that we would go to the source so that we would not lack knowledge. If we're confused this morning, Lord, then I pray that we would unconfuse ourselves by first believing In the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us, and that believing that He will reveal Your Word perfectly and in the perfect timing. I pray, Lord God, that we would not ever shy away from God's Word. I pray, Lord God, that we would be those who pray and just serve You more. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.